The following program, Our Unique Tales, is a five-part series which is being funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland under the Sound and Vision Fund. This program deals with adult themes and may contain audio that some listeners may find upsetting and or unsuitable for children. Discretion is advised. Declan Flynn, an Irishman, attacked and killed in Fairview Park in Dublin in 1982. On the day of his murder, a gang known as the Rollers hid in the park. Their plan was to hide behind trees to rid the park of what they called steamers. On this September evening, their plan ended in a brutal murder. Declan Flynn was savagely attacked, beaten with sticks, had multiple kicks to the head, back and stomach. This man was killed and tortured for one reason. Because he was gay. Declan's five killers were found guilty in a court of law in 1983 but were all given suspended sentences by the judge. This decision of a suspended sentence caused outrage amongst many Irish people from the gay community and beyond. It caused a protest march. It took Declan's murder and the legal system's belittling of it to finally make Irish people take a stand. Enough was enough. His murder was seen as the catalyst for the LGBTQIA pride movement in Ireland. This year, when you march in a pride parade, or you watch from the sidelines, remember Declan Flynn's name. This series is dedicated to Declan. Hello, I'm Ed Roach, a 33-year-old man from a small town called Mallow. It's in County Cork in Ireland. At the age of 31, after years of keeping my sexuality a secret, battling with shame, self-hatred, embarrassment, rage and mainly fear, I pulled the courage out of somewhere and came out to my family as a gay man. 31 years of living a lie finally came to an end for me in January of 2019. Honestly, it's been the most courageous thing that I've ever done. And I've no doubt that some of my family and possibly even some of my friends are only figuring this out about me right now. Well, there you have it. I'm gay. And I'm proud. This series isn't really about me. It's a series which features some inspiring LGBTQIA figures in Ireland. Each of these wonderful people will be telling their story of what life was like growing up in Ireland as an LGBTQIA person and 
what life is like now for them. In case you don't know what those letters stand for, here's a quick lesson. That's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, intersex, asexual, and the plus. Well, that represents however you identify. This is not my story. It's our story. This is Our Unique Tales. Meet Rory O'Neill. Many people in Ireland know Rory as the Queen of Ireland or drag queen Panty Bliss. He's also a huge gay rights activist. This year, Ireland is celebrating six years since same-sex marriage became legal in this country. Rory was a huge campaigner during this referendum, knocking on doors, canvassing for a yes vote. Today, Panty Bliss is off duty, and I have the pleasure of chatting to Rory O'Neill. I'm from Ballinrobe, County Mayo, um, which is South County Mayo, because anything north of Clare Morris doesn't count. Um, and uh, I am from, you know, the typical, I guess, the middle class part of a small country town. Um, there's the doctor, the priest, um, the bank manager and the vet. And we were the vet's family. My dad is, you know, he, he was, he'd been to university. Um, he wasn't a pub man. And he's not particularly a sportsman. Um, but he just worked constantly. So, um, so in some ways it was typical in that, you know, we, we didn't see much of him, you know, um, but he was, you know, good presence in our, in our lives. He's a great dad. Um, and my ma is, um, you know, the classic tweed skirts, flat shoes, pillar of the local community, uh, involved in absolutely everything from cleaning the church to making costumes for the musical society to organizing the bake sale and the, you know, the agricultural show. Um, she's in her eighties and she's still involved in the credit union. You know, she's totally <laughs> one of those, you know, when we were growing up mass up every Sunday, absolutely. So like really classic Irish Catholic family, you know, I was never, I never quite, even as a kid, I never fully bought into the religion. Um, I mean, you know, my other brothers and sisters, some of them would definitely would them. So there are six of us and at least four of them are, would be fairly regular mass goers and all of that. Um, I just, it was always, I always hated it. <laughs> I always like, I despise mass from as early as I can remember. I just found it so boring and I hated the smell of the church. And oh, I just, I've never, I never took to it. Um, so they would have wished, and I know to this day they would prefer if I went to Mass, and I know I'm included in their prayers every day and all that stuff. But they accept that I'm, you know, as soon as I became an adult, that these are my decisions to make. And um, so, you know, I don't, they didn't hassle me after that about mm. going to Mass or whatever. Were um, you always, you know, somewhat different as a kid? Did you have a yes. different experience as a child to your peers? And if so, how were you yes. different? 
I mean, you know, a lot of my gay friends will tell you I have a story of, you know, being bullied and all of that. That was not me. Um, I was always mousy and I got on fine with the bad boys and the good boys. You know, like when I was a teenager, you know, I was just as happy to be smoking cigarettes behind the bicycle shed with all the bad boys as much as I was to be playing Dungeons and Dragons with the nerds. Like, so I never really was bullied or anything, but I very definitely felt different. I was all, I always was, I was always only interested in art, you know, and you know, just in things that the other boys weren't necessarily interested in. I did art for my leaving search and I was the, you know, they didn't do art classes because they considered that to be pointless. So I studied art totally on my own and I took the Leaving Cert art exam on my own, you know, the only person doing it. Um, but, and, and in, in primary school in Ballon Robe, um, it was, I felt even more awkward and different. And I also had this very clear memory of, um, this one of the teachers and he really was, you know, was into the GAA and all that. And I used to hate having to play football and hurling and all that. And I can remember this day in class and he was a you know, nice guy and all, but him like, you know, get trying to get us all to go and whatever, do the training or whatever. And I'm just like, no, I don't like it. And he was like sort of shocked. I remember that he was like, he could just couldn't grasp it. And we, and was having this big sort of, not an argument, but a back and forth discussion in the class. But I was the only boy who was just saying, no, I don't want to do it. I don't like it. And and he just couldn't grasp why I wouldn't want to be playing it. So, you know, there was no, so it wasn't like I was, I never felt bullied or that people were being mean to me. It wasn't like that. They just didn't understand me. So Rory was misunderstood as a kid. But who were Rory's gay influences growing up? If any. And when did he start to realize that he was gay? It sounds so weird now. And if you say this to a young person now, they just don't understand. But I had no exposure to gayness of any kind. You know, there was no Graham Norton on the television. There was no nothing. And there was no internet, of course. So I saw nothing gay. So there was nothing for me to say, oh, right, that's me. Like, that just didn't exist. Like, when... Village people were number one forever with um, YMCA and all that. Nobody in Ballon Rogue said, oh, they're gay. Because we didn't understand the reference. You know, we didn't know what a letter queen was. So, um, like, we just thought they were a bunch of guys who liked to dress up in costumes. <laughs> you know, like, um, and I always have super clear memory of seeing Boy George on top of the Pops the first time. And the next day in, in school, Huge debate and discussion about it. But the discussion was all about whether or not he was a man or a woman. The idea that he was just a flaming queen just didn't enter our heads. And so I had nothing to sort of latch on to and say, oh, I think I might be that. Um, literally the only gay presence in my life, you know, until I went to our college, really, was a Mr. Humphreys and Are You Being Served? And... <laughs> He was just this flaming queen who was just there to be the butt of punchlines about gay, being a gay. And I honestly, at the time, wouldn't have been able to tell you for absolutely sure if gay people existed or whether they were just a made-up joke thing. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, and so I might have had all these feelings, you know, and getting a warm feeling when I see Michael Murphy and his mustache reading the news. But I didn't know what that was. I just, you know, whatever. And um, and so it really wasn't until I was, you know, a teenager, and then I really understood that they did exist. Um, but I'd still never met one or seen one in real life, you know. So it was just an odd, slow kind of thing. And I think half the reason I went to our college um, was because I thought, oh, I might find it, you know, queer people there. Um, and I went to you know, a very small art college and I found one other one and he's still my best friend. Um, <laughs> um, but it was just a different world. And so I probably wasn't able to say to myself, oh, that's what it is. I'm a gay until my first year in college, I suppose. And I would have been 17, 18. Realizing he was gay at that age, Rory went to art college, a place full of creative people. Manny open to Rory's sexuality. But how did Rory's family take the news that he was gay? And how did he come out? So I went to college and then I, I told all my college friends, I think, I think it was towards the end of the first year. And I, around the exact same time, um, I told my oldest sister. And so I told her, and she was the cool one in our family anyway, you know, it was, it was a shock to her, which is so weird that it was a shock to her. Um, so she called my older brother and told him, and he said, so am I. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah. um, so then very quickly, though, all my brothers and sisters, except my little sister, who, you know, we had the weird thing, oh, she's too young, whatever. So they all knew. And their first reaction was to say, you don't need to tell mommy and dad, because sure, they don't need to know. You know, what they don't know won't hurt them. You know, at the time, that was... And um, and so for a little while, that was it. But that obviously then very quickly understand. Well, I understood. You can't not tell them. Um, if you don't tell your family, um, you, you, you turn your family into acquaintances because you're constantly going to, for the rest of you, you have to lie always about who you really are and your life and the things that are upsetting you and your relationships and all that stuff you're always going to have to be lying and building this wall. So um, so your family will end up just being acquaintances. And I didn't want that to happen. So, and, and, and quickly, my brothers and sisters all understood that too. But this is here where it gets a bit complicated because, so my brother is seven years older than me. Um, so clearly he should do it first, right? <laughs> um, so that was agreed upon. That was going to be the plan. He would tell them first, and then I would row in behind. But he has not lived in this country since he was 15, and he would come home very irregularly. And a lot of that, I'm sure, too, was around him because he was gay. Um, and my brother is also like one of these like micromanager types. You know, everything has to be exactly perfect all the time, right? It's really annoying. And um, so he started... He did investigations with all of his gay friends' parents and asked them, you know, how do they wish the coming out thing had been done and all of that. And he came to the conclusion, and it was, it was good advice before the internet, that the best way to do it is a letter. Because if you sit down in front of your parents and you say, I'm gay, and if it comes as a shock to them especially, they have to respond immediately in that second and of course, they're not going to get it exactly perfectly right. They're going to say something wrong. <laughs> and, um, 
And sometimes the gays get up and they're a high horse saying, oh, my dad said this. And I'm like, calm down, bitch. You know, it took you probably five or 10 years to get you to get, you know, to come to terms with yourself. So why do you expect your dad to have it perfect, you know, when you blurted it out over the Christmas dinner? So so that's what he decided. Because a letter then allows them to read it, take in the information. And it also allows you to express it perfectly. You can spend time over the letter and, and do it all beautifully. And then they have time to take on the information uh, if they're upset or worried or shocked or whatever it is, they have time to sort of calm down and then respond, you know, thoughtfully. So it is before the, you know, the Internet ruined all this with instant communications and videos and emails and WhatsApp. But that was good advice. So he was then going to write the perfect coming out letter. But because with him, it was taking literally years he was writing the slowest, most perfect word-for-word letter. He once lost, left his laptop on a on an airplane, and that sent him back to square one because he lost <laughs> what he'd written. About. Like it was driving me mad. And then around that time, while I was just coming to the end of my tether about it anyway, and at one point, my ma and I were driving alone. She was driving. We were driving to Galway, and. I don't remember now exactly what she said, but she said something that I misunderstood. I thought she was saying, I know you're gay, so just tell me. You know, I don't even what the conversation was, I do not remember, but that's what I thought she was saying. So I thought, oh, finally, okay. So I just like, yeah, well, I am gay. And turns out that is not what my mother had meant at all, and it came as a total shock to her. Um... We, she nearly drove off the road. Like, we were literally driving at that. It was like the worst possible scenario. <laughs> and she basically kind of froze up about it. Um, I know now that what it was, was of course, was all the religious stuff. And um, and so she basically said something as we were driving, like, okay, well, let's drop the subject. I need, you know, to, time to sort of think about it. Really. So she had real difficulties with it for a while. Um, which started to, to ease when she called her own brother, who is a Catholic priest in England. So he basically told her to get over it. And that sort of started a process of her. And it, but it probably did take a couple of years for her before she was totally okay. She is totally okay with it now, a long time. Um, then this thing happened. So my dad was out. And then we heard my dad's car coming in. Some days, depending on the thing, he, he would come home and have lunch. And my mother would you know, dinner in the middle of the day. You know, that was the family. And we heard my dad's car pulling in. So I went and sat in the living room and my mother went out and got into his car and told him in the car. And I was in the living room, like out of my mind with worry. So I did have big worries about how he would deal with it. And, you know, and so often fathers, you know, the one you worry about more. But my dad just kind of walked into the living room. He just walked in and he said, and he said, oh, basically, I think what he said was, well, don't you be worrying about what I think. Now, what's, what's, what's for lunch? Absolutely cool about it. And I actually didn't believe that at the time. For years, I thought, oh, he pretended to be super cool for my mother's sake. Because, you know, my mother was upset about the whole thing. So I thought he was thinking, I'll act so cool because I don't want to add more upset to my wife. Yeah. But I've really quizzed him hard about it over the years since. 
And he says, no, he just honestly didn't care. Um, and I, and I sort of said to him, yeah, but I, dad, you used to use, you know, say, oh, something queer sometimes and that kind of stuff. And he was like, yeah, but to me, queer just means, you know, different and odd. And the gay stuff was just different and odd to me. You know, it was a non-judgmental sort of queer. Mm. Uh, and then, and so he claims he really was, just didn't bother him. He didn't care. Having come out to a loving family who were thankfully accepting of his sexuality, Rory chats about a time in Ireland that was very different to nowadays. The 1980s. Like when I was coming out, it was the height of the AIDS crisis. So people were dying and what people thought about when they heard the word gay was dying. In a way, you know, you could sort of look at my mother and and some people think, oh, being gay has put my mother through all this stress and, you know, trouble and worry and all that. But my attitude even then was, um, no, religion has done this to my mother. You know, so it was uncomfortable and I didn't like it. And of course it was awkward and I was worried and I was stressed out about it. And I had these fears that my parents would take it really badly, even though I shouldn't have, but you know, you can't help it. But at, its, at the heart of it, I felt like there's actually nothing to do with me. I didn't ask to be gay uh, for a long, you know, stressed period, you know, in my late teens. I definitely didn't want to be gay and tried to ignore it and not be gay. You know, so to me, it was just like, I'm just telling them this fact and there's nothing I can do about it. So I didn't, I, I felt some sort of guilt about stressing my parents, but not that much because I didn't ask for this either. I hated it, but I didn't feel any particular guilt. Now, many years after that, or not many years after, a couple of years after that, I had to tell them I was HIV positive. And now that was a different scenario. I felt so horribly guilty about that. I, when I, I was diagnosed in 1995, and, um, and I was open about it from the beginning with my friends and, and all of that. Um, but I didn't tell my parents for about a year. Um, and that was because A, I was dreading it, um, but B, also, and of course, in 1995, it was just before, you know, you know, the proper treatments were you know, developed and discovered. So it was still in the period where it was basically a death sentence and, you know, you were told you're going to be dead. Um, so I spent about a year preparing the, the, the telling of that. I, I already knew, again, I, I'm not going to hide it from them because there's no point especially because I thought I was going to be dead in a couple of years. And so there was really no point in not telling them because they were going to find out. But when I went down to Balmoral to tell them that, um, I was so well prepared, you know, and, uh, you know, was going to know the answer to everything. And, um, I mean, they were amazing. My parents are amazing. They took it on the chin and, you know, just got on with it. Things have changed so dramatically. And now it's a manageable condition, um, I take one pill every morning and I just get on with my life. I don't even think about it, but it's still, um, it's still a serious thing. So, um, you know, people should be super aware of it. It's still out there. Um, and you know, in a sort of a, you know, more global terms, you know, it's, it's certainly not a a gay disease anymore. Many more women are, you know, affected around the world and all that stuff. Um, but it still has that sort of gay disease connotation in this part of the world. Um, 
And it's actually shocking to me how little young people know about it. Um, and the recent, you know, it's a sin thing really, I think, made younger gay people, I think, you know, younger people in general, understand what happened properly for the first time, which is, you know, they really were unaware of it. Um, younger gays, I think they really do think of it as, oh, something old gays used to worry about. And they don't really understand, you know, what happened and all of that. And also, you know, the gay community has changed so much. You know, when I was first going to gay bars and that, you know, you had to be, you know, what's her name? You know, Miss Marple or someone just to find a gay bar. Yeah. Um, they were so hidden. The community was so small. Um, I think sometimes straight people are outside the community. They don't understand the role that, you know, gay spaces play in the gay community. They're super important to us. Um, and they're much more than just a... Like you know, a gay bar is more than just a gay bar often. You know, it's like a community center. It's where you meet other people who are like you, sometimes for the very first time, um, even in a sort of a modern progressive, you know, version of Ireland that we think we hope we live in nowadays. Sometimes you just need to be in a gay space to be able to totally relax, um, uh, to just sort of be yourself and not be worried, uh, you know, about it. Um, that's a really important thing. Um, just to meet other people in real life who understand you and the weirdnesses that you had to deal with growing up and all of that stuff. Um, and they fill, fulfill functions, you know, where it's where we find out about where the HIV testing is going on and, you know, what events are happening. You know, they're very much like a local community center. Like I often sort of say that, you know, a gay bar is like the, a local bar in, in, you know, in every small town. Um, yeah. It's more than just someplace where you go and buy a drink um it's a sort of a home away from home and every gay person has these you know the stories and the memories of the bars that they were you know kind of grew up in and all of that stuff um and that's where you learn to be yourself and all so i think they're super important to us we have to um mention of course 2015 um, you were a big campaigner for and during the same-sex referendum. You mm. knocked on doors. You tried to secure votes. Um, what was people's reaction when you were doing that? Because am I correct in saying, were you doing that as Panty or were you doing that as Rory? Oh, I was doing it as Rory. Okay. I was going to be knocking on some poor woman's <laughs> housing estate door dressed as a giant cartoon. Um, <laughs> but was the reaction overtly positive at that time? Well, it was. I mean, my experience of the canvassing was that it was overwhelmingly positive. And, um, and of course, the results showed you why. Yeah. Um, of course, there were some negative reactions. But, you know, most Irish people are also, you know, regardless of what they think about gay marriage, they're polite and whatever. So even the negative reactions, for the most part, were just, you know, a quiet, you know, well, thank you, I've already made my mind up or whatever. Very few of them want to get into some sort of horrible argument on the doorstep. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, but, you know, at the time, canvassing made me very, it was what made me positive about anticipating the result because it didn't matter whether we were, what kind of area, you know, we were canvassing in, it was always a positive response and it was always more positive responses than negative. Were there fears of yours at that time? Did you think this might not really go the way we're hoping? Oh, for sure. Um, I think mean, you'll always have that. You know, nothing is, is assured in an outcome. Um, and there was the fear that, you know, the, the polls always said it was going to be yes. But there was the fear that people would tell the pollsters one thing out of embarrassment, you know, and didn't want to, you know, 
say, no, I hate the gays. <laughs> so they, whatever. Um, so there was always that little worry about it. And also because um, of our weird regulations around canvassing during um, uh, you know, referendums, um, everything was pre- always presented as a 50-50. You know, the debates on television and, you know, a newspaper and all that. It was always, here's 50% of this argument and here's the 50% against. So it was always presented as this 50-50. And so, of course, there was, I was, I was, I had concerns and worries about it. Um, but canvassing is actually the thing that made me more positive than anything else. Um, I was just worried about you country coaches. <laughs> well, I was too, you know. <laughs> well, because I was only canvassing in Dublin. Um, yeah, so, it's yeah. funny, you know. But I was you... hearing reports from the country canvases too that they were all very positive. So, Yeah, no, it was. And I think what you said there, you hit the nail on the head. I think for me, you know, I remember at that time I hadn't actually come out. Um, so I was, you know, the closeted gay trying to persuade my mm. family to vote yes um, without giving my game away. Yeah. Um, but no, I think, you know what, we, we managed to secure it. It was a yes vote for the country. Why, and uh, and tell us everybody else, you know, why was it so important for gays to be equal? I think the Irish gay community feels super secure in our place, in our society. Um, we feel very sort of locked in. And, and we're in this unique, unique position in the world where we know to a percentage point what the rest of the country thinks about us. Like no other country knows that, yeah. and 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 knowing that the vast majority of people are totally fine with it, what was freeing in some way and powerful, and like you know basically the day after the referendum, you you would see you know walking around Dublin you'll see gay couples holding hands, and you still see that today, however many years later that didn't really wear off, and um, and that is sort of super powerful just knowing. That the rest of the country is is good with us. If you were, say, I always use this example. If you were like a young lesbian couple at a bus stop, you know, late at night in Dublin before the referendum, and maybe you felt like holding hands, you you probably didn't. Now, what stopped you was not necessarily the fear that you know somebody is going to attack you or something, because thankfully Ireland isn't generally very like that. Um, and also, it wasn't even really the fear that some drunk asshole might say, oh dikes or whatever at you but i think what really stopped us was the fear that some asshole would say something like that and the real fear was not that he would say that but that everybody else at the bus stop would agree with him like even you know they would quietly in they think yeah that was the real fear of being sort of isolated like that um especially in a moment where you just wanted to do something really natural and ordinary and normal and hold your girlfriend's hand or whatever. But since the referendum, even if some drunk idiot, because of course the referendum didn't get rid of every homophobic asshole, but even if one is there and, and says something, you know, those two young women know, well, actually, you know, at least 63% of the people at this bus stop think you're the dick. True. And yeah. And that is, there's something very powerful about knowing that. So, um, so for me, I thought marriage equality was, obviously, I thought it was really important and, you know, campaigned for it and wanted it and all of that before it happened. But actually, now, looking back, I think it was even more important than I even imagined. After a lifetime of fighting for same-sex marriage rights, 
Rory O'Neill married his now husband, Anderson Cabrera, in 2019. Proof that Rory's unique tale has a happy ending. For anyone listening who might be struggling with your sexuality or your identity, Rory finally offers some words of encouragement. You know, the things that I worried about when I was in that period stressing about whether or not I was gay and all that and wishing that I wasn't, you know, all of the things that I worried about then um, turned out to be true, but they also turned out to be the things that I like most about myself now. Um, I am a much better and nicer person for being queer. Um, It's made me a more empathetic and, you know, just nicer person. And I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, when I was 17, 16, whatever it was, um, I was terrified that I was going to be gay. But today, and for many years, I'm so bloody thrilled that I'm gay. It's been nothing but a brilliant experience for me. Um, I think I'm lucky to have turned out to be gay. Really lucky. So there you have it. He's lucky. Really, really lucky. I know that not everybody is as lucky as Rory or as I am. Sometimes all it takes is just a little bit of courage. This series is not designed to make you out yourself or to out somebody else. Only ever do it when and if you're 100% comfortable within your own skin. Sometimes you might not be 100% comfortable. Sometimes it just feels right. Whenever the time is right, you'll know. And you'll have a fantastic, big, gay family to support you. We're all here. We're all in this together. This is Our Unique Tales. been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode please visit the spin website for further information and resources or contact the national lgbt helpline at lgbt.ie or call 1-890-92953 our unique tales is a five-part series which is being funded by the broadcasting authority of ireland under the sound and vision fund this is spin